0: Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Ghost Bump podcast.
1: Hello, you spectacular people! Welcome to this 303rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going north, up to Canada, to Toronto, and we're going to talk about the Keg Mansion Steakhouse. The Keg Company is an awesome company in my book because they go and refurbish these historic old homes and buildings and turn them into restaurants, and it's certainly a great way to save them. Before we get into talking about that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew Stephen with a V, Liz, Julie, Trista, and Beverly Ann. With an E before the Y. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment Noddity. The moment Noddity was suggested by Ariel Facey. There are some lonely hearts out there that turn to online dating sites and newspaper personal ads to find love. There's a city named Uten along the Baltic Sea in northern Germany and its home to Bratumgamseisch, which in English means Bridegroom's Oak. This tree is believed to be 500 years old, and it's the only tree in Europe with its own mailing address. And why would a tree need a mailing address? Because there are people, dozens every day, who hope to use its magical powers to their benefit. And what magic power does the tree have? It apparently is a matchmaker. A mailman named Carl Heinz Martins has been delivering these letters for 20 years. And what he does is puts letters into a small knot hole in the trunk. Then lonely hearts come from all around and reach into the hole hoping to find a match. The story behind the tree is that a young woman fell in love with a chocolate maker in 1890 and her father did not approve. The couple sent secret messages to each other at this tree by leaving letters in the knot hole. Eventually her father realized that the love was good and he hosted their wedding under the canopy of the tree. By 1927, the tree was so overwhelmed with mail, the post office decided to give it its own address. The main rule about the letters is that you must write to the letter sender or place the letter back in the tree. And many couples have found love this way and gone on to marry. Some have carved their initials on the branches of the tree even. The bridegroom Oak, has ropes holding parts of it together, and many branches have been removed due to fungus. But it still stands and matches lonely hearts to this day. An old tree playing matchmaker? certainly is odd.
0: This history podcast is haunted.
1: And now, This Day in History. The month of july on the 8th in 1822 poet percy shelley drowned in the bay of spezia percy shelley was born in 1792 into a family of not only means but also political position he stood to inherit his grandfather's estate and a seat in parliament he attended Eton college and moved on to oxford from which he was summarily expelled for voicing his atheistic views his father broke ties with him over this as well and this left him in dire straits for a while shelley believed in free love He married a 16-year-old girl named Harriet in 1811, but by 1814, he had fallen in love with Mary Godwin, and he abandoned a pregnant Harriet. Mary would become pregnant too, but lost the baby. She would later give birth to a son, the couple named William. Eventually, Harriet would commit suicide, and Percy would marry Mary, who went on to write Frankenstein. Percy became most well-known for his poetry, with his best work being Prometheus Unbound in 1820. He was aboard a schooner named Don Juan, and he took it out to sail from Leghorn to La Spezia in Italy in July of 1822. A storm erupted, and Percy went overboard and drowned. At least that is according to one story. Conspiracy theories claim pirates may have attacked to rob him, or that creditors had him killed. The boat was found with a huge gash in its side like it had been rammed. Percy was cremated, and a story claims that Mary kept his desiccated heart in her desk for 30 years. There are modern-day theories that believe it was actually his liver, as it would have been waterlogged and not cremated, while the heart would have burned up quickly. Cake Mansion Steakhouse in Toronto, Canada, is considered Canada's most infamous and haunted restaurant. The steakhouse is the former home to a radio station and the Bombay Bicycle Club, but for many of its years, it was a home to some very well-known Torontonians. Several family members died here as well as a staff member. Many have claimed to have had unexplained experiences at the steakhouse. Could these be caused by spirits of the family? Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of the Keg Mansion Steakhouse. Toronto has been the setting for many films like The Shape of Water and Suicide Squad and for television productions like The Handmaid's Tale, Orphan Black, American Gods, and one of my favorites, The Umbrella Academy. This is a great city for productions as it is a financial center and large with a population close to three million. But this was originally the domain of the First Nations, first the Wyandotte people and then the Iroquois. The first European settlement here was a French trading fort known as Fort Ruy, and it was established in 1750. A Frenchman named Etienne Brule was the first to explore the area in 1615, and this is why the French would be the first Europeans to settle here. The Seven Years' War started in 1756, and when it finished, all of Canada would be British-ruled. A man named John Graves Simcoe would become governor of Upper Canada, and in 1793, he founded the town of York, named for the Duke of York. It would be the capital of Upper Canada. The first post office opened here in 1833, and the following year, the town changed its name to Toronto and was incorporated. Gas streetlights were added in 1841, and the city grew and flourished. The Railroad would come as well as horse-drawn streetcars that eventually were electrified. In 1867, Toronto became the capital of Ontario. The city would suffer its own great fire in 1904, and the Depression would hit it hard. But following World War II, the city rose to prominence. Some early prominent families in Toronto were the McMaster family and the Massey family, and both would have connections to the Keg Mansion. William McMaster came to Toronto in 1833 and was the founder of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and McMaster University, and he served in the Senate of Canada from 1867 to 1887. He had made most of his money running a wholesale dry goods company and eventually partnered with his nephews, one of whom was Arthur McMaster. Arthur would build the mansion that is today Cagé Mansion. The Massey family is said to be arguably the most prominent family in Toronto. The Masseys are most known for manufacturing farm equipment and for being patrons of the arts in Canada. One of the bigger contributions was the concert hall, Massey Hall, built by Hart Massey in 1894. Massey Foundation, which was formed by Hart's sons Chester and Vincent after he died and donated most of his estate for the building of public institutions, is responsible for the construction of many landmarks in Toronto. These include the Massey Memorial Pipe Organ, Hart House Theater, and Hart House. Vincent Jr. would go on to be Governor General of Canada in 1952, and another grandson named Raymond would become an actor most well-known for his performance as Abe Lincoln in Abe Lincoln in Illinois. Americans were not happy that a Canadian had been given the role, but his wonderful performance silenced the critics and got him an Oscar nod. And a little fun fact, a friend of Raymond said, Raymond wouldn't feel his Lincoln impersonation is complete until getting assassinated. During Victorian times, Jarvis Street in Toronto was once the pinnacle of society. This is where the wealthy built their mansions. One of these stately homes that still stands today is the Cague Mansion. Arthur McMaster built the house in 1867. The mansion is amazing. I have it as the cover photo, and it really doesn't do it justice. I would love to see this building in person. It just looks so wonderfully whimsical and castle-like. It's definitely unique and built in the Baronian Gothic style. And this style is Scottish. And when you think of this baronial gothic style when it comes to castles, you probably, if you're into Disney, would be thinking about some Disney castles too because they are definitely inspired by this style. This includes those round towers, lancet windows, and gothic spires. The mansion originally had 26 rooms and 17 fireplaces. There was also a stable and large brick carriage house in the back. Many things have happened inside this house. It's been changed many times over. So those original 26 rooms and 17 fireplaces are not all still intact, obviously. Hart Massey had moved to Cleveland, Ohio for a while, but when he returned to Toronto, he decided he wanted to return in style. And when he found out the Keg Mansion was up for sale, he bought it. Of course, at the time, it wasn't called the Keg Mansion. It was probably something more like the McMaster's Mansion. The year that he did that was 1881. He renovated the house and added a turret with a red tile roof, which you can still see today, a veranda, and greenhouse. And I'm not sure what's at the front of the building. For any of you who live in Ontario, you visited Toronto, maybe you've seen the Cake Mansion, been inside of it. At the very front, looks like it's on the second level, there's a bunch of windows to me, it looks like a balcony or a patio or something that somebody would have that's been enclosed in glass or windows. Is that what that is? Is that the veranda and it's been enclosed in glass or something? Edward James Lennox was an architect who embarked on his solo career in 1881. He was immediately hired by Hart Massey to supervise alterations to Euclid Hall, and that is what the Massey family would end up calling the Cag Mansion. He would later design the family's Massey Mausoleum in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. It is a magnificent structure. Be sure to Google that. Hart also added a secret tunnel under the house that connected directly to the Willesley Hospital building. There's a legend that claims that the tunnel was used so that Hart's son, Frederick Victor, could be secretly whisked away to the hospital. At least that's according to some of the stories I read, but those stories also claimed that Frederick died when he was 14. When I went into the death records, I found out that Frederick was not 14. He was actually 23 when he died. That's a big difference there. So I don't know how much veracity there is to this story. But there were very many of these mansions, especially along this street, Jarvis Street, that had tunnels built underneath them going to other places. I don't know if it was so that they could travel from one building to the next without having to go out in the cold and the snow. I personally would want that in my house. So I'm not exactly sure why they had all these tunnels, but it is a very well-known fact that they did. Why he built it, I'm not exactly sure, but that is one possibility. Tragically, Hart had lost another son named Charles six years earlier, and he'd had another son who died in infancy. So at this point, he had lost three of his sons. He eventually died in 1896, and his daughter Lillian would take over ownership of the house and the family interests. She was a strong woman, and she needed to be because a woman as the head of the family was just not done at this time. Lillian had loved their time in Cleveland, and she officially named the mansion Euclid Hall after the street they lived on in Cleveland. Lillian demanded respect, but she was a wonderful employer, and her staff adored her. When she died in 1915, they took it very hard, especially her personal maid. Stories claim that the woman hanged herself in the foyer over her grief. After Lillian's death, the house was given to the Victoria College and it became the first home of radio station KFRB, now News Talk 1010. Later, an art gallery would take over. There was also a restaurant. I believe it was called Julie's Mansion or Restaurant. And on the second floor would be home to the Bombay Bicycle Club. And as far as I know, they still have a sign out front that does say Bombay Bicycle Club on it. The cake Company would buy it in 1976 to house one of their steakhouses. Inside, the lobby has a marble checkerboard floor. A woman's restroom is located on the second floor with an oval vestibule that overlooks the lobby. Columns and a gorgeous wooden archway open up into the main lobby area. It really is a beautiful building if you get a chance to look at the inside of it. It's just lots and lots of columns of carved wood. Several of the fireplaces are still there with their carved mantelpieces. Some of them are marble. Others look like they might be some kind of painted wood. There are chandeliers. There are only two booths in the restaurant, and they're located in the library, which is actually not the original library. The library had been outside the kitchen, but a fire caused the redesign to occur. A beautiful carved wood staircase leads to the second floor and the bar is nestled underneath. I hear the food here is amazing. The other thing I've heard is that this place is full of haunting stories. Staff and patrons have seen many spirits. The reports date back to the 1950s. And as is the case, I'm sure that's just when they first started reporting them. There probably was other stuff going on here long before that. As I mentioned, there's a story that claims that a maid who'd worked here in the house hanged herself in the house. Based on many people's experience, I think the story is probably true. I mentioned that there's this women's restroom up on the second floor, and as you get outside of it, there's this oval vestibule. So just imagine this big oval cut in the floor that has a banister around it. It seems to me like that would be a pretty easy place, as long as the banister's sturdy, for someone to hang themselves from. And that's apparently what this young woman did. This oval vestibule was the scene of that death, and many people have seen a residual scene of the maid hanging there. A girl named Mia T. shared the following experience. This was my first time inside the Cag mansion. What an amazing place. I had a wonderful dinner with my fiance. I knew about the woman in the washroom and kids on the stairs. We'll talk about those in just a minute. Even knew about the hanging maid. We took an impromptu tour after dinner and ended up at the second floor ladies room. I was in there alone, but it felt like someone was with me the entire time. I came out and looked to the stairs. A woman dressed in a dark, beautiful, old-fashioned dress looked at me. I assume she was a keg worker, maybe someone made to look old-fashioned. Sounds weird now, but made sense to me that night. I even said hi to her when walking past and down the stairs. Felt weird about it, so I asked the host. He said it was only four mail servers that night, no waitresses, and definitely no one in an old-fashioned dress. So was this the maid hanging out there, or was it someone else? The website The Travel Geek reported this story is told by one of the waitresses. The one that stuck out in her mind was that of a father and daughter who came to the restaurant after a gymnastics competition in the city. The two were from out of town and knew nothing about the restaurant before stopping by the keg for a meal. The girl was 10 years old and went to the washroom at some point during the meal. A while later, she came back to the table crying. She told her father that while standing by the oval vestibule outside the washroom, someone tried to push her over the edge of the railing. When she turned around, no one was there. It was only after talking to the waitress did they learn that this is where Lillian Massey's maid committed suicide shortly after the death of her employer. It's one thing to see something residual. It's another to see an apparition. But wow, to have something try to push you over that, especially a child, that's scary. Children died in the home and their spirit seemed to still be here, especially that of a little boy. The children's rooms were upstairs when the Masseys lived in the house. The disembodied running footsteps of little kids that are excited can be heard running on the second floor. And when people go up to investigate, the footsteps stop. So you can imagine they get up to the top of the stairs and it's almost like they hear these children coming down this hallway. And just as they're coming around the corner and would come into sight, the footfalls stop. No longer hear any kind of running. The little boy is seen on the main staircase often. And I mean often. Most of the stories I found out there were about him. There are a few stories about this staircase that may or may not necessarily be connected to him. He doesn't seem to be residual, but intelligent, as many times he is said to be looking directly at diners and glancing into rooms with a curious look on his face, as if he's observing what's going on. One account said, I went upstairs to wait in the Keg Mansion bar for a table to open up. At the top, I saw a dark-haired boy playing on the stair. Strange, because I knew kids are not allowed in there at night. Walked past him towards the bar, looking back again to see the boy was gone. There again in 2014, I went up to the second floor bar with a friend. Talking, we both heard it at the same time, the sound of kids running down the stairs. We looked over without a word to see no children at all. And here is the strangest story about this staircase. Another experience on the staircase involves this wooden spindle. So these are the ones that are in between lead down from the banister down to the stairs. Several years ago, one of the wooden spindles under the banister on the third floor landing came loose and fell straight down onto the bar top below during a busy Saturday night. Amazingly, no one was hurt. Scared the crap out of the bartender, though. The manager went upstairs to see where it came from and wrote it down in a logbook. The spindle was repaired. One year to the day the exact same spindle fell down onto the bar again. People wondered after this if the spindle had something to do with the little boy on the stairs and his death. Had he fallen and this was a reason why? Or was that date the date of his death? The spindle was again found to be sticking out sometime later and had to be repaired again. Pretty freaky. I watched a video with, I think it was a waitress or a manager who worked there, but she walked the reporter that she was talking to up to the place where the spindle's at And she kind of could play around with that spindle a little bit. She says, see here, it's loose again. She goes, nothing we do can make this spindle solid. It just is always loose, no matter how many times they replace it, no matter what they do to it, glue it, nail it, it always comes loose. This little boy is seen often just sitting on the stairs, not only watching people eat, but also playing with a train set. And of course, when I say that he's seen, most often... It is children who see him, and they will ask their parents, can I go play with the little boy on the stairs? And they may or may not see who this little boy is that they're talking about. The women's bathroom up there on that second floor is a center of activity as well. People describe the woman who haunts this area as creepy, but that seems weird to me because many people believe the woman is Lillian Massey, and I half wonder if this woman in the old-fashioned dress might have been Lillian Massey. One woman said that she went into the bathroom and she saw what she thought was another woman in a stall because she could see the feet under the door. She entered the stall next to this one and heard the other toilet flush. As she opened her stall door, she heard the other one open and expected to see a woman step out, but no one stepped out. She glanced into the stall and no one was in there. She came out of the bathroom with a look of utter terror on her face, and after verifying from someone standing there that no one had come out, she told them her story. Another woman entered the bathroom and instantly felt like someone else was there. She looked in the stalls and knew that she was alone, but she couldn't shake the feeling. She went into the stall to do her business and heard the lock start moving. It unlocked and the stall door swung open, but no one was on the other side. I'm not sure how she reacted, but I would have immediately been done doing whatever I was doing and gotten the heck out of there. Another woman asked her husband to wait for her while she ran to the bathroom. She'd bought a bottle of wine and it was in a bag that she carried in with her. She hung it on the hook on the stall door. She heard the plastic of the bag rustling as she did her business and looked up to see the bag off the hook and in midair. She closed her eyes preparing to hear a huge crash on the floor. She didn't hear anything and when she opened her eyes, the bag sitting on the floor by her feet with no damage to the wine bottle. Melanie Alaraby had an experience here while dining with her husband. She believed she had interactions with two different spirits. She describes it as follows. While at the Keg Mansion on a Friday evening, my husband and I encountered two different spirits. We arrived at about 5.45 p.m. for our first visit to the Keg Mansion. As soon as I entered, a feeling of excitement mixed with anxiety, my heart fluttered in my chest. Maybe I was really excited because I knew the place was haunted and was so happy to finally visit. My husband and I were alone in the India room. I soon felt a light coldness leading to goosebumps on my arm. After our waitress took the orders, I needed to use the ladies' room upstairs. Nothing happened, unfortunately, just continued anxiety. At our table, the coldness and goosebumps returned, continuing through our meal. It escalated to a light, wispy touch on my fingers, centered near my engagement ring. I thought maybe a fly looked down to see nothing. I moved my hand off the table, and the feeling stopped. Back on the table, and it returned. I told my husband, who was surprised, but said he felt nothing odd. Later on, I once again felt the touch, but this time on my neck. Then a flash across my mind of a woman. She was young, blonde hair with a wide face and blue eyes. She wore her hair swept up and wore a light-colored blouse with a high neck and a long light-colored skirt. In the flash, she was standing behind me as if shy around my husband. All during our evening, the gentle, shy presence remained near me except one moment. I went back to the women's washroom a second time, and again she was gone. Maybe my husband wasn't the only one, she feared. So I'm not sure who this was in a light-colored blouse. Was this, could this possibly have been Lillian again? There's a lot of activity in this beautiful steakhouse. They even keep a ghost log behind the bar upstairs. As I said earlier, I'm really glad that the K Company goes around and gives these old historic locations new life. Are the renovations they do somehow awakening the spirits and making them more active? Is the energy of having all these people in the restaurant fueling the paranormal activity? Is the Cake Mansion Steakhouse haunted? That is for you to decide. And another little fun fact about the Cake Mansion Steakhouse is some episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents were filmed here. I think that's pretty cool occasionally as happens doing research for a particular location i come across some other things that are near that location or some interesting stories and that happened when i was looking into toronto one of the most popular locations in toronto obviously is saint lawrence market i didn't know a whole lot about it but if you're going to visit toronto this is one place that should definitely be on your list It was named the best food market in the world by National Geographic in 2012. Do I need to say anything more? And this location has been around for over 200 years. And I found a really cool haunted story that went with it, so I thought I would tack that on to the end of this because it made me laugh when I read it. A little bit about the history here. In 1803, there was a man who was the lieutenant governor, and his name was Peter Hunter. And he saw this plot of land on Front Street, west of Jarvis Street, which we were talking about, because that's where the Keg Mansion is located, south of King Street, east of Church Street. And he said this block of land here is going to be called Market Block. And they put the first permanent farmer's market there. Now, the original structure burned down in that Great Fire of Toronto I talked about, which happened in 1849. After the fire, St. Lawrence Hall was built along with a new market building. And just to give you a layout of the land here, there's actually three main buildings that make up this complex. There's that St. Lawrence Hall that I just mentioned, and then they also built a South Market and a North Market. That St. Lawrence Market South building was built in 1845, and it would become Toronto City Hall, at least until 1899. Then the City Hall moved to Old City Hall, which is at Queen and Bay Street. Well, this original building, as happens with a lot of city halls back in the day, is there was a jail underneath it. And of course, when you have people who are in jail, there was a time where Canada had a death penalty. So there were people who were hanged here in the market square as well, because that was one of those things you did back then and made it a very public event. The market also was a hub for all kinds of sales, which means that there was also a slave market here too. So you've got some interesting energy here. You've had a great fire tear through. You've had slaves being sold. You've had criminals here who have been hanged. So you wonder, is it haunted? So I looked around. Are there any stories of hauntings going on at this location that sounds like it's got to be number one on your list for visiting when you go there? And I found this in the Bulletin, which is the Journal of Downtown Toronto. And originally, I found a story that talked about this experience from the perspective of some people who were on a ghost tour. This is actually the perspective of the guide of the ghost tour. His name is Bruce Bell. You can find his tours at brucebelltours.ca. And he guides a lot of them through St. Market Square. And I want to read to you what he wrote. As I mosey through St. Lawrence Market on my daily guided tours, the one question I get asked most by local and foreign tourists alike is, are there any ghosts here? And I love that that's the main question. As somewhat a skeptic in all things occult, I would often answer, not that I know of. That was until a few months ago. In the basement of the market today, according to the original architectural plans, are the remains of an old jail built in 1844 when Toronto's Second City Hall used to stand here. In 1899, City Hall was relocated to larger premises at Queen and Bay, now Old City Hall. Today, not only does the original council chamber still exist as the Market Gallery, but also scattered throughout St. Market Square are miscellaneous bits and pieces of that former City Hall, including the bricked-in doorway to what was the mayor's office, a few old fireplaces, and ancient chimneys embedded into the walls. However, the one spot that has everyone holding their breath is the remains of the old jail in the sub-basement, still with rusted metal anchors rooted into the stone that held the prisoners. Devoid of any light, fresh air, or clean water, jail conditions in 19th century Canada were so appalling that even Charles Dickens on his visit here was so disgusted at the way we treated prisoners. He once wrote that it's much worse here than in England, which itself is absolutely wretched. A few months ago, while conducting a tour, I was in the former prison in the basement of St. Lawrence Market when a guest asked me if I'd ever seen any spirits. As I was about to say no, the camera she was holding went flying out of her hand, The light started to flicker and a loud banging noise was heard coming from behind the bricked-in doorway. I stood silent and said, I have now. According to the Ontario Ghosts and Hauntings Research Society, the last word in paranormal activity in Toronto, there has never been a documented case of a ghost sighting at St. Lawrence Market, so maybe all that is about to change. I decided to do some digging around, ask a few questions, and see if anyone else at the market has ever felt an unholy presence roaming the ancient hallways. And then he went on to say that he talked to a few workers at the Market Gallery that has these exhibits detailing Toronto's long history. used to be the former council chambers. And these workers told him that sometimes when it's really quiet, they'll hear disembodied footsteps coming up the stairs. There also has been a picture captured of some kind of a ghostly mist on those stairs as well. For no apparent reason, the lights will go out and the 150-year-old floorboards will squeak for No reason at all, as if someone is standing on them. So who knows? But I just thought that was so much fun to have this guy who is a skeptic that doesn't host ghost tours. He's just hosting your regular history tour. And somebody asks him about the ghosts. And it makes you wonder, since he gets asked that so many times, was the ghost or ghosts or spirits or whatever's there just fed up with him saying, nope, nothing going on here that they said, you know what, we're going to do something pretty dramatic. So I thought you'd enjoy that. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you guys for a couple of reasons. Number one, we have the Halloween special coming up. Before you know it, oh, I'm so excited. It's almost Halloween. I want to hear your personal paranormal experiences that you've had. They don't have to just have been at a historic building. Anything that's happened to you in your lifetime, write it down. Record yourself and send it to me and we will get it on for the Halloween special. So be sending those to me. Also, October 1st will be our fifth anniversary. And what I've been doing for the past few years is hosting a flash fiction contest. We're going to do that again this year. So here are all the specifics about that. The deadline is midnight Eastern time on September 8th, 2019. Your word limit is 1,000 words. You can go over a tad, that's fine, but try to keep it under 1,000. Your subject is creepy or scary, and I ask people to keep it within a lower R rating. So, you know, check the gratuitous sex, language, and gore. Something you wouldn't mind your teenager reading. And I've had other people say, well, some of the stuff my teenagers read is pretty intense. I remember I was reading Stephen King as a teenager. So, but you know, something you wouldn't mind sharing for an all ages kind of thing. Our third place winner is going to get a medal and a choice of their t-shirt. Their story will be read on the air. Second place winner will get a medal and a choice of a long sleeve t-shirt and their story read on the air. And our first place winner, a medal and choice of hoodie sweatshirt And their story will be read on the air. We usually have a couple of runner-ups as well because you guys are so darn talented, it's hard to decide. So we will share those on the anniversary special as well. And as usually happens, I save whatever extras we have for our Christmas Eve storytelling time. We always tell scary stories on Christmas Eve around here on a Facebook Live. So I will save them for that. Good luck. Send your entries to historyghostbump at gmail.com. Again, your deadline is September 8th, 2019, so get writing! I can't wait to see what you guys come up with. I already have one entry, so thank you. Also want to let you guys know we've changed up things a little bit when it comes to the tiers and benefits that people get for donating to the show. At the $1 level and above, we've always given you a gate pass to the upside down of Facebook, which is basically the secret, quote-unquote, HGB Losers Club. It's really cool. I share a lot of live videos when we're at haunted locations, give you guys a lot of insider information there. We share a lot of memes and things like that. It's a lot of fun. It's a special place to be. And what I've done in the past is that when people stop donating, then I take them out of the group. Well, it's getting to the point now where not only is it getting very complicated for me to keep track of who's still giving, who's not giving, I decided I'm just going to make it easy on myself and give you guys a little bit more incentive as well. If you have ever given any money to History Goes Bump, whether it's as a monthly donation or just a one-time donation, you get lifetime membership in the HGB Losers Club. So for those of you that I've given the boot because you stopped giving, ask to come back in and we'll get you back in there you have lifetime membership. And of course, anytime in the future now, for those of you who sign up, it's just a dollar a month to get you started there. You will have a lifetime membership inside there. Also want to remind those of you who are at the $2 and above level, I've had a lot of people asking, how can you listen to the bonus episodes off of the Patreon app? Because you can't have that going in the background while you're doing something else. It'll shut down the show. When you sign up, you get your own special private RSS feed that you can plug into any podcast catcher, whatever app you like to listen via, you just put that RSS feed in there and you can listen to it on anything. So you don't have to listen via the app if you don't want to, and it makes it very easy for you guys. You're definitely going to want to have that because now in the future, anytime I have any ads on the show, ad-free episodes are gonna pop up in that special RSS feed. And I usually get the show done a little bit early, So you probably are going to get early access as well. If you're giving at the $2 level, you get one bonus episode. $3 level, you get two bonus episodes a month. And the $5 and above, you get four to five, depending upon how many Mondays there are in a month. Plus you get the entire back catalog at whatever level you're at. So you get that plus anything in the back. And all of those you can listen via this special RSS feed. And everybody at the $2 and above level will get ad-free History Goes Bump episodes. I want to thank Amanda for your email and your story about Uncle Spike. It was wonderful. I adored it. want to thank all of you for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers.
0: Dispatches from the Grave Digger.
1: We'd like to welcome into the Necropolis Laura Gilmore, Linda McDuff, James Wilfong and Ariel Facey, all of you are going to be getting buried under an obelisk tombstone. And we also want to welcome Aaron Clardy and Amy Lynn Hansen. Both of you are going to be buried in chest tombs. Thank you to all of you for signing up. Greatly appreciate it. And now Mort has his very last set of eulogies. About eight months ago, I ran a special offer for anybody who signed up at the $2 and above level or was already at that level. They were going to get eulogies written and read off by Mort. And now after 160 of them, Mort is going to be retiring his eulogies. I've heard from a lot of you that you enjoyed that, so I'm very glad you did. All right, Mort, take it away, big guy.
0: Eulogies by Mort. This tribute is for Candice Nelson. She thought ghost stories were fun. She had lived in the city of Lakeside. How long after death do you know you've died? Gabe Finnegan Veers had lived in Castro Valley, in the lovely golden state of Cali. He had been a wonderful supporter. So in the necropolis I'll give him quarter. This eulogy is for Jonathan Smith, who was a very talented blacksmith. I was very envious of his mighty beard, with one I might not appear so weird. Sherry Diarmond was from the city of Bowling Green. I'm so talented at grave digging, it's obscene. She liked urban legends and ghost shows. What is a ghost who really knows? This very last eulogy is for Kelly Rank. With her I really like to hang. She liked to tempt a spirit or two. That goes for the dead or a craft brew. I want to thank all the supporters, old and new. And all the listeners in the spooked Spooktacular crew. Mort wants you all to know that he loves you.
1: Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast catcher.